Hello and welcome to the ET PhD team podcast, the podcast here to help you with your relationship with food and body by giving you evidence-based techniques to support yourself with a sprinkling of feminism, a dash of dismantling diet culture and a side of vulnerability as we share our own messy lives with you. I'm Emilia, a registered nutritionist and PhD with the sole purpose of making your life happier and healthier. If you love it, please do go wild and share it. And if you're ready for support with our coaching, details are in the show notes. Hello and welcome to episode number 267 of the ETPHD team podcast with myself and Anna. Hi Anna, how are you? Hello, I am very well, thank you. How are you? I am pretty well also, thank you. Thought I had COVID again, did not have COVID, just had I imagine sinusitis again. So, you know, been ramming that steroid spray up my nostrils and having a good time. Um, so. I did enjoy your, uh, I don't know whether it is a story or real where like mid yoga flow, there was like tissue. <laughs> that wasn't actually intentional. I, when I put it up, I was like, oh yeah. But yeah, I like, I've been that person recently that's got like tissue up their sleeve, like a grandma. Like I, I feel quite, well, that's who I am now. I'm, I'm okay with it. Other than that, I am fine. If my voice lasts for all of the podcasts and lives by 6 p.m. tonight, I'm going to be buzzed with myself. Buzzed. I mean, I'm buzzed with myself anyway, just because I'm me. Um, Okay, let's just get started on the question. Everyone, I'm being sarcastic, okay? (laughs) I don't actually have any self-worth at all. It's fine. Um, Do you want to go first? Sure thing. Hunger fullness signals are a bit all over the place right now after a period of restriction. I generally don't feel hungry at mealtimes, but know I need to eat regularly to support my goals. So I am. But how do you know when to stop if you already felt full before you started? Is it just a case of serving yourself a regular sized meal and then clearing your plate? Great question. Um, Yes, pretty much. Um... It is mostly about like thinking about what a serving size of protein is. So maybe it's like a palm size for its palm size portion or a tub of yogurt or a chicken breast, whatever it may be. So you've got the kind of quote unquote ideal or optimal serving of protein. And then, you know, in a meal, you're probably going to have, you know, like, again, maybe a palm or so of carbohydrates um, and then um, like a matchbox size of fat and then um some vegetables and fruit please don't use those specific so specific <laughs> mind. just saying like you kind of know roughly in a, um what like a meal makeup may look like so yes use that as a gauge i think i think the problem the, with the intuitive eating paradigm etc is when we do have this dysregulation of hunger and fullness because there are times when you're one like you speak about this quite a lot you have to be practical with your eating but two there are times when you can't honor your hunger and fullness like if you're recovering from binge eating or if you are um recovering from a diet or potentially you're experiencing leptin resistance if you're in a larger body there are certain times where it's not necessarily helpful and like being objective kind of gets a bad rep because it's like well is that like a rule is that like a should and, and and actually being objective sometimes with these things is I think is is pretty important. Mm. I think also as well, like are you from coming from a period of restriction? Were you using high volume foods? 
and okay is it worth kind of looking at your meals and going probably don't need all of those veggies like some veggies yeah maybe a little bit of a reduction in protein or swapping for something that's like easier to digest potentially lower volume in your carb sources as well Mm. yeah I've worked with people in the past where like they've come from maybe a competing background or a photo shoot type focus and like I'll say this to them of okay well let's look at roughly how many portions you're having a day and they're up in like the 20s and it's not like we're demonizing these things but you're never going to be satiated if you're eating more than 20 fruits and vegetables a day because you physically can't have space in your stomach for more like I mean that's not scientific fact but um yeah I think that's such a good point okay Becca's client's question is there anything you can do to get better at identifying when is best to rest and when is best to just force yourself to do something? I hate using it as an excuse, but I'm reminded my depression is there when I find quote unquote normal things so difficult. And being around someone who is so productive and action-based, sometimes I feel such guilt for not being able to do things. I find it hard to draw the line between you're struggling and feeling really low right now, so sleep, rest, do less, and You've been like this for a couple of years now. You need to make yourself do these things. I'm questioning if I'm making things worse by not doing things and maybe using this feeling depressed or anxious as an excuse. Maybe everyone does feel how I feel, but they do the thing anyway. I don't know if this makes sense, but I struggle knowing the difference and then feel really bad about myself um, for struggling with quote-unquote normal things. It's... A struggle for so many people and then add in the struggle with depression as well and being able to kind of understand when it is you need to use some first self-compassion and when it is like it, it is something that a lot of people do genuinely struggle to find the balance with and something that's come up in conversations with clients this week is that often they're able to identify when it is actually a time for rest when they start telling themselves certain stories like you're just being lazy because there's that underlying feeling of needing to do whereas their body's telling them that they don't need to do but because there's whether it's kind of hustle grind harder or being surrounded by people that are doing makes them feel like they should be when actually they need to take a step back I actually love that like the difference between identifying the need for rest coming from inside you and like the physical I guess I don't know if this is exactly what you said but like physical feelings versus the feeling the need for movement based on like the stories that you're telling yourself in your head Mm -hmm. interesting I wonder if there's a um a struggle with that for people who are who are on this journey who are um maybe earlier on who their shoulds come from us as in, we don't say you should be doing this, but we do get you to ask you to be curious about, you know, rest, exercise, etc. And I wonder if it's like, okay, well, the story in my head is that Anna's saying that I should rest. Well, then listen to that. But like, it, th- that's obviously quite different from the should that comes from, you know, that hustle culture or relaxation induced anxiety and all of these things. Mm. But I guess if you think obviously in terms of, depression and anxiety that that is going to make you want to isolate and 
I guess, get a bit more curious in, like, you sent out a fantastic resource recently on rest and the different types of rest. And okay, maybe I can rest, but maybe it's more social rest and I do something pretty chilled with a friend. So you're still kind of meeting needs. Well, you're meeting a few needs there without um, a feeling like you're maybe kind of not not doing it as it should be done. Mm. It's interesting, right? Because I think it's always helpful to think about like, how do I want to feel tomorrow? What's going to make me feel best in the morning? Like these types of future self-questioning, immediate future self-questioning can be really, really helpful. But something that I've learned a lot in recent years about, about depression is you don't want to do these things. You don't want to ask yourself, mom, myself that before tomorrow morning, because like you like you don't want to. And, and I think recognizing that one, not everyone does feel that way. And it is probably a manifestation of your feelings of depression or your experience of depression is really, really important and not and practicing some compassion around that and not ha- holding these yourself to the standard that you've created in your head. Like, I don't know. I don't know what you feel. I don't know your relative level of happiness, sadness, grief, anxiety compared to mine. It doesn't really matter. What matters is what my experience is and then how I move through that. And I think the fierce side of compassion is important, but I do think sometimes when you're experiencing depression that the fear side of compassion is is not something that actually you even want to give space for. Mm-hmm. And I and you're working with Becca, so I'm sure that you are getting the right support for this and or you know with your doctor um to help you through this. But I think again, maybe a little bit of objectivity can be quite helpful here in the sense of if you've not been to the gym for like a month and you know that you love the gym, then saying, okay, well, objectively, objectively, my body probably isn't your body can be tired from things other than the gym, right? It can be fatigued from stress. It can be fatigued from like chronic pain. It can be fatigued from moving a lot, but not going to the gym. There's lots of reasons, not sleeping, right? But be objective with all of it and say, okay, well, I loved the gym. The gym makes me feel great. It actually helps in terms of my energy levels. And I haven't been for a month um, and I'm feeling like my body's physically tired. Okay, well, what else is going on for me right now? And is exercise going to help that or is exercise going to make that worse? I'm just using exercise, obviously, as an example. Should we stick on the the rest stress theme? Uh, What are things that you do to relax and prevent getting really stressed out? So right now, I've got (laughs) calls today. I've got calls today from one till six-ish, right? Um, And so I was just speaking to someone on the call about this, actually. I've got, my my calls don't stress me out, but obviously I've got a lot to do and um, life happens to do as well. And um, I've got things to do. Anyway. I am um, right now I've got a peppermint and licorice tea on my left with the the mug that my nieces and my sister-in-law and brother gave me I've got an incense incense behind my computer and I've got a candle which is unnecessarily lit actually on the right because it's bright light so I can't even see it never unnecessary <laughs> <laughs> and I've also got my soft blanket on my legs um and so in the moment I do things to support my like my stress response I, actually I did a post on this I'm going to put this up by the time this podcast goes out it'll be I'll put it out on Wednesday but there's some I, I was thinking about the relationship between cold and stress and anxiety 
And we know that exposure to cold, like longer term, can stimulate our sympathetic nervous system. For stimulating our sympathetic nervous system, that's a similar sort of a stimulus that we get when we're stressed or in fight or flight mode. And so it can impact the way that we feel and we might feel more anxious and we might feel more stressed, um, which I think is really, really interesting as this weather changes. Um, it's one of the reasons like when we get anxious, it's helpful to think about excitement rather than trying to stop ourselves from feeling anxious because that sympathetic nervous response is quite similar. Um, anyway, that's a bit of a side note. So I think in the moment stuff is really, really important. Keeping myself warm right now is really important. If I start tensing my shoulders up and contracting my jaw like I was doing yesterday because I was so cold, that's that put my body into a stress response um, and that just adds to things. So I think physical comfort for me is a huge one. You know, I, I've got my knitwear on, like physical comfort is huge. Um, but honestly, touch wood. I think the day-to-day -day stuff is probably more important. And again, touch wood, I don't even know if I want to say this. Like, I generally don't get stressed. Like at the moment, I'm in a, a big phase with work. Um, I'm also trying to navigate some like um, personal things, like not bad personal things, but just trying to, you know, logistically organize myself. And I definitely in the past would have got stressed. Like I used to be that person that would be crying before exams, like ripping my hair out, like really like, so anxious and so stressed about stuff that and worried about stuff that I couldn't control and when I was busy I would just be like I think everything's done like I'm so stressed and be running around being clumsy being stressed like and I and I think that the major thing for me is not the fact that I've got a blanket on my legs and a candle behind my computer but the fact that I've worked really really hard on mindfulness I've made I meditate every day I do yoga all the time and well, all the time as regularly as I can movement daylight the mindset of reminding yourself that everything gets done in the end and if it doesn't hopefully no one like nothing bad was going to happen you survived 100% of your worst days all of these cliches I think filling your brain with them and practicing them every day in some way shape or form is what helps you manage stress in the moment more than again a blanket behind your lap a candle behind your laptop yeah I I mean, like you, I have my candle and you know where the MS apothecary range? Sunny you say Brett, that you word can... very well. I thought it was apothecary. Actually, I don't know what I thought it was. You know what? Funnily enough, it, um, on my lunch break, it was the apothecary table episode on Friends. Oh. So it is fresh in my mind. But regardless, their range is great for like the essential oils and they brought out um, they call it like eau de perfume. It's just a body spray, let's be honest. <laughs> but they have a comfort one and it is so nice. It's like really, really, I don't know what's in it, but it's like warming almost. I've got that on. And I also bought the breathe one for when I'm like, just need to um, perk myself up a little bit. Oh, nice. Also, something that I started doing over the summer because it was going through a really busy, busy time. I say that like it stopped, but um, <laughs> is, and genuinely it's like something so small, but often like we're starting the day already kind of thinking about our to-do list and what we've got to, what we've got on. And we're not giving ourselves that time between like getting up and coming out of like sleeping and dreaming and into like back into our bodies. So it's just like, for me, it is 
not even a minute, just 30 seconds, sat on my bed, feel the bed, like grounding almost feet on the floor and then get on with my day. Mm, so underrated that, like literally that minute in the morning, so underrated because your brain needs to move through those phases before it's in its full wakeful stage. Um, I found myself being really intentional with like scrolling and stuff because I used to be like, well, I just won't open Instagram till I'm like, into it for a little bit but now I'm like no because then I'll open TikTok because I think it's funny or whatever I'm like no like getting your brain into that instant dopamine seek in immediately in the morning is not helpful for your behaviors for the rest of the day because I don't want to be in that state of constantly seeking dopamine for the rest of the day like I want to be in that calming responsive soothed state for the rest of the day so how are you setting yourself up for that I do like that also um I think I mentioned this in the last podcast, but this set that Becca got me from Lush, it's got a, it's got um, so it was a bath bomb and it was like a sleepy set, so shower gel and the moisturizer, it's like oat and lavender and something else. And I before bed right now, I've been like rubbing it on my chest, <laughs> and then like if I'm like in my pajamas, I just stick my nose down my pajama top, and I'm like, <laughs> mm, you're so you're so calm. It's great. <laughs> You're just adding to the like granny vibe. What's it like? Vicks on the chest. <laughs> Listen, we all know that's who I am, and that's okay. I'm okay with it now. <laughs> um, is it me? It is. Um, okay. How are people going to the gym, doing yoga, Pilates, CrossFit, cooking, doom scrolling, cleaning, being social, self-improving, working on a full-time job and getting out for a walk every day? I'm genuinely baffled. They're not. <laughs> They're not. I can, I can assure you, or if they are someone that manages to do all of that, those things, probably not very balanced they're probably sacrificing other stuff as well yeah I think look I, I do a lot of those things but I don't do not crossfit I don't <laughs> do them all in one day and I think the point I, I remember I did a post on this and it was like numbers to support your relationship with food and some people were like how do you expect people to do this every day I'm like I say yoga I mean yoga in like five minutes I, I mean like an outdoor walk for 15 minutes and I think when you look at other people, it's easy to imagine that they're doing this big in-depth yoga session, training session, walk, doom scroll, whatever else was on that list, right? Um, but realistically, that they're not doing everything to the extent that you think that they are doing. Maybe they are doing everything on that list, but the extent to which they're doing it is far less than what you think it is. And they're probably not doing it consistently all the time. Um I think like if we're talking about yoga and training and stuff like I train three times a week so that's how I have time for yoga because I don't train any more than that and I spend the time doing that or there are some days where my walking every day is walking with my coffee for 10 minutes in the morning and then between meetings I walk up and down my driveway and then I'll try and get out for a walk in the evening before I collapse onto the sofa and it might be half an hour like it's not like you know it's not like people are going out well some people might because that's their priority and maybe they have the access to different things um but people aren't doing it to that extent but then but then that is an important thing to know of technically we all have 24 hours in the day but are those 24 hours the same no and I think that's really important to know some people have children some people are um 
able-bodied some people are disabled some people like have access to safe spaces to walk in daylight some people don't some people have a gym five minutes down the road some people have to drive for 25 minutes to get to their gym some people have access to be able to pay for fresh fruit and vegetables some people don't and their local shop is what what they have access to like I think when we're trying to cultivate a more self-compassionate approach to, to things or towards ourselves one thing that we have to recognize is that personal responsibility is not the be all and end all and I hate this fitness narrative of like yeah but you know if, if you're dedicated enough you can do it and it's disguised under so many different ways of framing it these days it really is but realistically it's still the same message if you want it enough you'd, you'd make it happen bullshit absolute bullshit and, it, and I really I really don't like it um clearly so I think try to cultivate one the awareness and the objectivity of like people these people are not doing what you think that they're doing um and two a more compassionate approach towards yourself in that what do you what's possible for you and start there it doesn't really matter what everyone else is doing but I think that's easier said than done um okay if you're struggling with shame and guilt around your body and food and we know these aren't the most productive things for improving them what are the best ways to reduce them besides just increasing self-compassion are there ways to directly decrease them well it's like just increasing self-compassion just have to do that little thing <laughs> that's the number one the other thing is of course the antidote to shame is empathy so feeling like you're in a community like the EDPHD community where you feel like you can talk about these things and people understand and remind you and uh, confirm to you like there's no there's no benefit to feeling shame and there's no reason that you should feel shame about these things it's important I think awareness is important like when you feel shame about food where is that shame actually coming from because sometimes when you actually think about it logically you might not know where it's coming from it might be coming from diet culture but it might be coming from something that you can't even you haven't even thought about that I don't know when you were 12 someone shamed you for eating a donut on the bus I don't know but like I think awareness is really important because at this point recognizing that you are safe you are an adult you have autonomy yeah, personal responsibility no you have the power of choice and um the ability to reframe and and learn new ways of doing things is is really really important um what do you think i would say as well like check in with what you're exposing yourself to in terms of social media um are you in friendship groups or people at the gym that perhaps kind of might be feeding into those beliefs that you have around kind of what food body should look like because I know when I was really struggling with um overeating I was still in a bodybuilding gym and everyone was eating their chicken and broccoli and the tupperware and I was like <laughs> do I do I can't talk to these people about it um so yeah I, I think I think like you said just looking at kind of um are you and I don't actually know if this person is but maybe it's time to join the telegram group and just 
building connection with people that are going through the same stuff or have been and can be there to support you Mm. and except it takes time these things you know they really do take a lot of time I wonder how much impact body dysmorphia has on me I have never looked in the mirror and thought I was skinny despite being ill at a really low weight in the past is there any way out of this or will that just be constantly how I feel about myself The reason that we're both silent is because we can't we can't give you an answer of yes you will definitely one day never experience these this body dysmorphia um that's possible it's for sure possible um but we can't we couldn't say like yes definitely i think a useful framing of this is trying to move away from trying to get rid of body dysmorphia and instead trying to focus on developing body neutrality. Um, because how do you objectively, like, I mean, you can objectively, objectively measure body dysmorphia. They do it in research all the time about right, specific scales and um, question, various things, right? We're not doing that. Um but if you're constantly looking to see if you experience body dysmorphia, you're constantly going to be bringing that back to the forefront. And I say bringing it back to the forefront, it probably feels like it's at the forefront a lot of the time. And so this idea around body neutrality of, it's not like we've spoken about body neutrality specifically for a while, but where you're not really thinking about your body hugely at all and that doesn't mean that you will never look in the mirror and see something slightly different to what your objective reality is. Um, but it does mean that you'll probably look in the mirror less and you can, you might be able to find a peace with and an objectivity around your reflection in the mirror in that you can name the fact that, okay, what I see in the mirror maybe is not reality. But what we all see in the mirror is maybe not reality, you know? realistically none of us really know what we look like and 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 I'm not belittling body dysmorphia it's absolutely valid um and a real experience but you know we can't I, I guess the thing is we can't like quant like we can't quantify it um and it's not about constant like I don't think it will be constantly how you feel about yourself if you're putting the work in the, which you are doing into finding that place of body neutrality and and being really accountable with, you know, how often you are looking in the mirror and how often you are pulling yourself apart and, and picking at bits that you don't like and, and having that self-critical thought, those the self-critical thoughts. And remember, like, on a podcast a few weeks ago, we spoke about this, I think, about the parts of your brain responsible for, like, your body image. When you're in a stressed state, you you are unable to... That's what I'm looking for. Your body image your perception of yourself is is varied or skewed um and often when if you've been in been an L at a really low weight before I don't know where you're at now in terms of body weight but it's it suggests like it suggests to me that maybe now you're still moving out of dysregulation and maybe a controlled state or maybe an overeating state I don't know but you're still in that potentially in that dysregulated state in some way which is impacting those that body dysmorphia even more so so it's again it's about working through body neutrality but also working through that side of things too and trying to find a space that feels more within that window of tolerance for you Mm. something um a client 
said to me yesterday that's really helped her is you know like what we've talked about in terms of like when you are struggling with anxiety to separate yourself from that feeling and she said herself one of the things when she was having a, a really really challenging body image day was to be able to go this isn't this isn't me like these are just a bit like we say in terms of kind of separating your, your thoughts but almost kind of the 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 disordered thoughts around her body that wasn't her that was someone else and for her that was a huge turning point in being able to go right okay I can separate myself and kind of continue focusing on what I need to do for the rest of the day mm. I like that uh what's the difference in sense of fullness between a snack and a meal so this client has kind of moved through needing to eat as regularly and evenly through the day and, and is allowing a bit more flexibility in terms of what what snacks and meals look like now so the question is how full should i be after a meal versus how full should i be after a snack and it, it, honestly i don't really think it's I say should. I don't think I think don't think it really differs hugely unless there's a reason for it to be. You have a smaller snack, possibly because you're not as hungry because you've had a main meal and you top yourself back up to kind of that comfortable fullness again. Um I think the the difference might be if you are quite close to dinner and so you have you're having your snack and it's actually maybe an hour and a half before dinner, and so you don't eat to as much fullness because you are going to have to a full meal in an hour and a half so you just have a smaller snack um but that's you know that that's really it you're not eating a snack to be five out of ten full and a meal to be eight out of ten full ideally you're eating to be satisfied like satisfied and regularly satisfied there's not like a ration on that mm. yeah it's it's still staying like like you said just being able to stay within that comfortable range of hunger so you don't get to the next meal what and and that might look different day to day depending on kind of how things are working out what you fancy um but yeah I don't think I've ever I've ever really thought about that for me it's more so I focus on the hunger in right okay well what does the snack need to look like so I'm not super hungry throughout the rest of the day mm. okay how do you deal with knowing you want to change a habit, then punishing yourself when you fail? And I guess this, the second part of this, I'm not sure if it's a same, different question, but how do you overcome the shame after a moment of binge eating? So it's kind of similar. I imagine it's the same. I would say on both counts, this is where self-compassion comes in particularly kind of the um the common humanity aspect and we're all going to make mistakes um I'm mindful in this instant to, to say like perceived failings let's say because if you didn't do a habit or you've had a binge or every and it's not failing it's happened and we can reflect and we can learn and we move on and that that is that is that but I think compassion is key and then 
with the habit side of things, I, is it just because it's something new and it's going to take a bit of time to work into it and okay, how can you maybe stack it with something else that's part of your normal day to make it a bit easier? But is there something else going on? Is there a bit of resistance that maybe you just need to explore a little bit more? Why is this one in particular a bit more challenging? And you, you can't, the, the point is you can't learn and grow and move through things if you're in such a state of tension and stress and self-criticism that you're not open to reflection. So when you feel that calling yourself an idiot and shaming yourself is the right thing to do, what you're actually doing, and it's not necessarily a conscious choice, but what you're doing is you're stopping yourself from learning from these things and moving on and then iterating on that and, and doing something different the next time. So remaining open. And I think if you can try and focus on moving that shame towards curiosity in that moment of, okay, I noticed that I feel shame. I wonder if I can replace this and be curious about what led up to that binging or what what stopped me from doing that habit. And I don't know if the habit is binging or something else what um made me do that habit what stopped me from doing the habit and okay well what am I going to change for tomorrow and actually use it as an opportunity to write something down I don't mean like a big journal and episode necessarily I just mean okay well what one thing are you going to do you can just even write it on your notes okay I can learn from that but if you're like I said if you're really stressed out and upset and mean to yourself you're not going to be able to sit and get curious about that because you're you're just going to be in such like an you know, that hyper aroused state. So, yeah. Um, when I go to my mum's house or I'm with my friends, there are always some snacks on the table. I cannot sit with snacks in front of me and not eat them. I let myself have a portion or two and I feel the satisfaction. But then five minutes later, I feel the need to have one again and again. I always want more and I'm constantly thinking about the food on the table even if I am not hungry anymore. So I can't concentrate on the conversation. First of all, it's quite it's quite normal to want to eat the food in front of you. There's tons of research around, you know, you're managing your food environment and the food in front of you, you're, you're going to want to eat it. You're more likely to eat more. Like this is not, you're not broken or weird for that. Um, but realistically, it's probably a restriction thing. And I know that that feels like a cliche answer, but it really is. If you never eat crisps, and then there's crisps on the table, you're probably going to be inclined to eat them more because of that restriction. Um, look at the foods that you tend to be on, feel that you're unable to stop snacking on and look at your diet and think, am I allowing myself to have these on various days at different times? Um, it could be that they're delicious, in which case they're just delicious. Like check in with, does this taste as good as it did the first time or the first one that I had? Um, it might, it might not. There's no right or wrong outcome to that. <clears throat> um, also, I think it can be quite hard if you're bored, <laughs> like in the sense of if I'm out, say I was out at a bar with people that like weren't really my mates, but I was there because I had to be there. Um, and there were snacks and I was bored of the conversation. I'd be hell of a lot more preoccupied by the food than I was of the com with the conversation. I'd be more likely to eat. So if you're bored, then look at like, okay, well, do I even want to, it's a choice that I want to be here. It sounds like, it's, I think you said it was your mom's, in which case, fair, valid. You like, you probably want to be there. Um, but can you change the topic of conversation? Can you 
move the snacks away can you move yourself away and change a topic of conversation I don't mean oh I can't sit around food so I need to go into a different room I just mean do you have to sit at the table there or can you go and sit on the bunker or whatever like just so it's not directly in front of you I think there's a couple of things of like the physical environment and the habit and then there's the also there's also the psychological restriction um, and where that's coming from. I'm not saying that you can you should just avoid all of these foods. That's definitely not what I'm saying. So again, take it in the context that it's meant. And I mean, on the restriction side of things, just check in that you're not going there super hungry, that you're not changing your way of eating because you've already told yourself that you're going to go to your mum's later and over snack. Um, just make sure that everything's staying consistent and like a bit on the same same line as the curiosity almost like question yourself if you're having those thoughts around well I'm just gonna continually eat the snacks yeah but what if this time I don't because this time I've nourished myself and I'm going in there feeling like nicely satisfied what if this time we have really great conversation and I'm not even thinking about the food Mm. I think you're like that's so right like we've well I know I've definitely been that person that if I was at a, a some a party or whatever and there was food out I, I would be and keep eating more and more even when I was satisfied I was that person for a very 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 long time I'm not that person anymore unless it's something delicious in which case I am and that's fine um so if, again like kind of like what you said recognizing that it's not who you are it's not how you have to be forever it's changeable okay this may have already been answered but how do you stop comparing yourself to other people who are at a similar stage in life and feeling inadequate the context is that I'm changing roles and have intentionally taken a job which means I don't have to work weekends I will finish at 5 p.m etc whereas my colleagues are taking jobs that will help advance their careers I know I've made my choice for the right reasons but it's hard not to compare to others I mean, you've answered it. You said you've made the the decision that is best for you. And I'm guessing it aligns most with your values right now. And it's totally okay if people value their career more than other things and they're making decisions that are different to you. But what is it that you think, like, why is it you think you should be doing that? What is it you think that maybe they're going to be getting that you're not because you've made this this decision, even though from the sounds of things, this decision is going to result in more fulfillment, more happiness. Hmm. I think you're right. Like you have to own your values. If this is genuinely why you've taken this job, own it, be proud of it, celebrate it. It might not be societally celebrated. I don't know because I don't know. I don't know your values and stuff, right? But there's a hell of a lot of power and ease and peace comes from you saying, do you know what I absolutely like I'm so proud of myself I value these things and look at me taking actions aligned with my values that's incredibly empowering and amazing um and you will have to keep coming back to that too because you will keep being triggered by these things and I can tell you because I experience some of these things sometimes and I'm like nope no but remember what you value and it goes away in an instant um and it becomes less and less but it still will be there um and then that that kind of reality that you have to sacrifice some things to get what you want. And you've sacrificed maybe those jobs to to have your weekends and to live aligned with your values. 
but they're sacrificing their weekends and who knows what that's going to sacrifice for them building a family having more social connection who knows um but they're sacrificing those things and keeping that in mind too of you only see what they're quote-unquote getting you don't see what they're giving up they don't see what they're giving up we never see what we're giving up because we don't see it we don't get it to know it's like sliding doors maybe you should watch sliding doors um the other thing i think the life stages thing is important to recognize is that it's quite hard being a woman and having life stages and expectations thrown at you all the time on top of that having a genuine biological life stage um importance it's hard regardless of whether you want to have kids or not you're still aware of your aging because you are aware of like 35 that's not what happens but like your fertility falls off a cliff like you're aware of these things even if you don't want to have children so you're like okay well I'm at a point where like my fertility is starting to drop like I must be getting older oh my gosh and I've not done x y or z and then you'll see other women in different phases of their life who have different things or different experiences and then you compare so I don't want to invalidate that either and I just want to highlight it's very very normal especially for women to have to especially coming into your 30s to start to look around and think oh am I doing things right am I Am I at the right point? But what is the like? What is the right point? And I think the Kardashians are amazing at this because they just yeah. they like you know you've got Kylie who had a baby at what like twenty two or something. You've got Kendall who's not got kids yet who's like twenty eight. You've got Courtney now having a baby after years of IVF at forty four or something like that. You've got Kim who's celebrating single or she at least is in the current season at forty two and loving being single and has her kids, but is this career woman and and I mean look. I'm not saying the Kardashians are like role models for us all, but I do think that certain things that they do does make me, you know, it does help with some of these like kind of life stage things and looking at people, especially people who are older than you can help with this too, like women who are older than you, who are living lives that are so different to the norm. Look at these people and, and look at what you love about them and be empowered and inspired by them rather than like looking at Brenda down the road who you know, got married at 25 and then had kids and then has a job that's like a nine to five, which is amazing if that's what she wants to do. But often it's those those people who are in that traditional trajectory that we end up comparing ourselves to, which makes it harder. Mm. Yeah, I definitely had to have that check-in. You know, when you're like, I don't know why, I think all my friends are in that stage, like kids and engaged or married. And you know, you're like, am I missing something here? And then you're like, no, no, it's just just societal pressures of what what you should be doing in your thirties. I'm like, I'm mean, like, genuinely, I'm really happy with how things are. So, like, call yourself out sometimes on those thoughts. I'm like, no, I'm I'm good. I'm where I need to be. Yeah, do you know what too? Like, I don't think we make enough space for like waking up and thinking, I want to wake up today. I want to do my job today. Or I want to be with my family today or I want to be on my own today like whatever it is that you're doing to be able to genuinely want to do not necessarily all the things you do but some of the things you do is incredible and we we often forget to practice gratitude for that because we're looking at things that we maybe haven't achieved yet if we even want to achieve them at all Um, it's me isn't it Mm -hmm. uh best ways to stop negative thought spirals slash rumination 
I am trying thought postponement, which is helping a bit and writing things down. But it's like when I put one worry away, my head will find something else. Are there any other ways which you can catch those thought patterns and change them in the moment? Great that you're doing thought postponement. Um, and this will like, it will take some time. I think I think the muscle that you build in your brain, not a physical muscle, obviously, that um allows you to distance yourself from your thoughts takes time. And really, that's a lot of self-awareness, a lot of mindfulness, a lot of meditation that allows you to recognize that, you know, you are the listener, you're not your thoughts, you are able to step away from those thoughts. And you're doing that work with the thoughts, thought postponement and that you're recognizing that you can hold those thoughts off till later. Like that, that highlights to yourself, to everyone that you're talking to there about this, that you recognize that you are not your thoughts. And that is... Um, really the hardest part that you are getting down which is um, amazing I think having a bit of a tool that is a mindfulness tool is really helpful here um, for example so I think sometimes when we're like oh just do a grounding breath or just come into your body this is really helpful right but sometimes when your brain is so loud it's actually it exacerbates things so for having a mindful approach a mindfulness approach that is almost outside of your body but still very grounding can be really helpful so this is when like that mindful moment can be helpful of what thing you see no not say <laughs> see smell taste touch feel i've said i've said one thing twice you know what i'm saying though the five senses i'm um, when you when you've done your thoughtless moment or when you've recognized the thoughts and you've affirmed to yourself like I don't have to listen to these thoughts. I can choose to be present. Then run through that mindful moment, that sensory mindful moment outside of your body. Um, and then sit with that. That can be quite helpful. And then that's like your pattern interrupt. And then go about whatever it is that you're doing. For me, when like I'm having anxious or thoughts are, thoughts are spiraling, I need something, like you said, to kind of, interrupt it and then ground myself and I need something movement wise so I mean I've talked about the like hair tie on my wrist or just like some tapping or shaking these the, and it, for me it's almost like I can visualize that nervous energy and those thoughts like coming out in that way mm. I've got quite a strong visual there and <laughs> um, okay we're gonna leave questions there thank you so much uh, keep them coming in thank you so much Anna thanks bye bye thanks so much for listening I hope you enjoyed it and as always if you did please do feel free to like share subscribe and review and if you would like to chat to me then you can find details of my Instagram in the show notes